So many of you have been here the whole day. I think all of you at least half the day. It's a wonderful space of practice to put yourself in to develop mindfulness and tranquility and investigation over all of that time. I was thinking about what to what to share or bring forth. I thought about that you know doing this practice is so integral to the learning that we have, right? Is that there's things that you can read in books or hear from other people, but then there's the actual doing of it and it's different. It's like reading about swimming compared to getting in the pool. You know, it's a different experience, right? And it's not that there's no value in reading about things or learning things uh, more indirectly. Actually, it can be very important to shape our understanding and have a sense of what we're doing. Um, And besides, it's just enjoyable because we have this mind that can put things together and understand things. Uh, But then there's the um, the experiential part is goes a little deeper than that. So there's actually, um, this is well understood within the practice that we're doing, within the skill that we're learning. In fact, it's recognized that there are three different kinds of wisdom. I thought I would talk about those and a little bit about where they lead. So, the first kind of wisdom is called Suttamaya Panya, and it means um, wisdom by way of hearing, actually. Uh, Sutta is, it's not S-U-T-T-A, like the text suttas, but it's Sutta, S-U-T-A, and that refers to the faculty of hearing, it just means to hear. And in the time of the Buddha, a person who was Suttava, or um, somebody who had heard, and that was a synonym for learned, actually, because they didn't really have books in the same way that we do while they had the Vedic texts. Um, But they didn't have the internet, for sure. And so to be learned was somebody who had heard a lot. That's interesting. In Suttavant, it was a a person who was well heard. (laughs) And that was somebody who had heard a lot of teachings. A lot of people... The only way to get teachings was to go listen to the local ascetic coming through town. And so this is recognized, actually, as a type of wisdom. It's not um, to be pushed aside or um, downgraded. So this is very important to hear things and to listen to teachings. Nishiro Biko says, we should make a point of searching for whatever will give rise to discernment. And that includes listening to things that are worth listening to. So we can consider what we take in through the faculty of listening. What is it that we're learning and taking in? And in our society, we could include reading. In a sense, we're listening to that voice in our head that reads things to us as we read. I find it helpful to make space in the day to take in some kind of dharma each day. So reading something or 
listening to a talk, even if you don't have time for a 45-minute talk, there are a lot of um, guided meditations or short talks. It's just nice to make that part of what we take in. And it does change. You know, I find that it changes the way I interact with the world to have this Sutta Maya Panya be part of my life because then something that I've heard has a way of popping into my mind at opportune moments, right? We've all had those moments where we're in the middle of something and are needing some wisdom to arise and suddenly, you know, like some voice out of the past, we hear Pema Chodron saying something from a book that we read by her or something. This is not an unknown phenomenon, that's why that's why this is encouraged, is so that those things are accessible to us and able to come into our thoughts at the level of thought, at the level of words. We should have some wisdom there. So, Sutta Maya Panya. And then the, the second kind of wisdom is called Chintamaya Panya, and that means uh, wisdom through reflection. So it isn't just that we listen to things, indiscriminately and sort of say, well, I heard it, so there it is, it's part of the mix. I mean, that's, that's one level. But there's a, an encouragement to actually reflect on what we've heard and consider. Well, does that make sense? You know, does that sound right? Um, does that accord with my uh, understanding and my knowledge? We're, we're putting together um, some kind of a picture for ourselves. Now, until we're completely free, we're not able to do that with 100% accuracy, and so we have to keep checking. Um, but it's worth reflecting, uh, evaluating what we've learned. And there's sort of two sides to this. One is that we don't immediately accept what we've heard. We're definitely encouraged to consider, well, does it sound like that person was wise, or does it sound like that's relevant for me right now? Even if some sort of some piece of wisdom that you get is is true and useful, it might not be useful for you at this moment. Um, wisdom is inevitably somewhat partial when, when it gets put into words, and so um, you know, we can check for ourselves if uh, it seems like teachings are helpful for us at this time or are helping us to get through the particular places where we need to let go right now. So not not immediately accepting things. And then the flip side of that is not immediately rejecting things. So that's also part of Chintamaya Panya, is that if we hear something that doesn't necessarily accord or doesn't quite resonate, um, the tendency is to say, well, you know, uh, that's not right, or um, I know better than that. And this is also a way that we can block our learning if we're not careful because we have all kinds of fixed views that we're carrying through life about how things are and what things mean and what's right and what's good and what's going to be helpful. But if you're not completely free, all these things you're carrying are not completely correct. (laughs) There's something missing there. And so we have to be um, maybe open to hearing things. And if they don't quite resonate, we could just take a moment to ask, well... What, what if that is right? Or what, what about that might be useful to me? So being careful of the things that we want to reject right away and seeing if there's a way that we could take them in if we value you know, the person who spoke them. There's always some discernment. But this Chintamaya Panya is a little bit deeper level. It starts to challenge 
our tendency to just accept what we like and reject what we don't like. Um, it's a little bit deeper kind of wisdom that where we actually maybe check with some of the data that we have about whether something is true. For those of you who um, have some connection to scientific enterprise, or even if you're just a curious reader of research results in the magazines and newspapers, you may be aware that um, often it'll go along for a while where um, there's a sort of an accepted view of something, but we're kind of curious creatures, and so things will be published that say, we thought this, this theory was true, but there's this little thing on the side that doesn't quite accord and that that's worthy of writing a news article about. And then after a while, um, enough evidence starts to build up that uh, you can't ignore it anymore. There has to be some change in the accepted theory. This is actually how science goes forward. Uh, and the same thing can happen with our personal views, is that um, you know we're pretty sure that we're right about something, but except for you know now and then we hear some little thing that doesn't quite accord with that. And then after a while, we start hearing more and more. Like, you know, we hear, for, for example, that um, we're going to die. And we say, oh, yeah, I know that. But in the meantime, it's really important that I live my life in this certain way. Uh, but slowly, if we do meditation practice, we start to accumulate more and more evidence that actually um, things really do, it is really true that we're all going to die. You know, we think, oh, it's going to be everybody else. <laughs> not really me. It doesn't really have to affect how I live. And if we look carefully, we're not living in accordance with that. And, and so this Chintamayapanya asks us to sort of continually reflect, yeah, but am I actually living in accordance with what I know is true? I have a friend who's Italian, and she uh, used to live in the city of Vesuvius, which is famous, you may know, for having an active volcano. Um, had a big effect on the Roman Empire, actually. Uh, and so this volcano hasn't gone off for a while, and there's two million people living in Vesuvius, and they only have these small mountain passes for um, getting out of the city. And there is, there, for a time, the city played with the concept that they had an evacuation plan for this, um, but actually it wasn't very practical. And if you really looked at how many cars per hour can get out, it wasn't really enough to evacuate the whole population. And so they've actually kind of politically just let it go and realize that they don't have an evacuation plan. And this starts to sound a little bit like how we live our lives. You know, it's like they know that if that volcano goes off, it's not going to be a good scene uh, for those folks. But, you know, it's a nice place to live. A lot of people want to live there. And so uh, they're not quite living in accord with the reality of this volcano. Um, so we can check in our own life if there are ways in which we keep hearing teachings about certain things, but we're not really living in accordance with that. And then the third type of wisdom is uh, called bhavanamaya panya. And bhavana means uh, cultivation or uh, development. And so this is the wisdom that comes through practice through actual experience. Once we uh, have learned something, we've heard it, 
and then we've decided that it makes sense and it does accord with how we want to be, then we have to actually practice it. We actually have to put it into uh, our direct experience. And uh, this is uh, then starts to develop toward the uh, deeper kinds of wisdom, the actual direct discernment of what's going on. And it can lead eventually to liberating insight, um, which the other ones don't quite get to. There's a lovely quote from Gregory Kramer talking about this. He says, there's a movement from understanding by view to reflective examination to the cultivation of meditative qualities as an essential support for penetrating further, going to the edge of the precipice of real understanding, apprehending an experience what the Buddha can only point to with words. So, you know, people like Greg and me and the Buddha stand up here and say things, Sutta Maya Panya, um, but the best that can be done is, is pointing in some way, and there needs to be the cultivation of the direct experience in, in our own heart and mind. And he uses kind of a general term. He says, the cultivation of meditative qualities as an essential support for penetrating further but what he's referring to there are specifically the seven factors of awakening. Um, I'm not making that up. He said that later in the talk where he gave that quote. So what he meant when he said that was the seven factors of awakening. And these are, um, these are very important qualities, and we practiced them earlier today. The, I'll, I'll read the list. They are mindfulness, investigation, energy, joy, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity. And these seven factors uh, grow strong in the heart as it uh, moves closer to liberation in various proportions, some more than the others, some some feel more obvious to people than other ones, but they're all going to be there and they're all going to be strong at the moment that the mind can penetrate and have liberating insight. And they're interesting in that you, you can think of them as a progression. Um, usually we start with mindfulness, and then as it unfolds, these other things will come, and uh, the mind is in a very balanced and equanimous state, often, when it's um, ready to let go. And so we can think of them as a progression. But there's another teaching that positions them as um, having two uh, different directions that they point and being balanced. And that is that the uh, the first, or the second, third, and fourth, which are investigation, energy, and joy, are said to be the energizing factors. They, they uplift, they brighten, they energize the mind. And then the last three, tranquility, concentration, and equanimity, are the calming factors. They uh, tranquilize the mind and bring it into a state of balance and equipoise, um, very calm and serene. And then they're balanced by these energizing factors. And so it's actually helpful to cultivate them together in order that they don't get out of balance. So, for example, the investigation and concentration pair is a nice one, I find. And that is um, cultivating both sides of the, uh, the seven factors of awakening. I didn't name mindfulness as one of those because mindfulness is the balancing factor. It's the quality that can observe the state of the mind and help preserve and tune 
that state of balance among the other six. There's a lovely sutta that um, talks about how when the mind is a little bit en- too, too energized, we should that's not the right time to cultivate the energizing factors. That's when we should cultivate the calming factors. And if the mind is a little bit tending toward the calm, then that's a good time to cultivate the energizing factors and create this balance. And then the end of this sutta um, says, um, it's, it, the sutta itself just says, and mindfulness is always useful. <laughs> That's like the only time it's mentioned in the whole sutta. And then there's a little footnote which says that there's a commentarial passage on that. And the later commentary um, puts in a nice image. It says, like salt and a versatile prime minister, mindfulness is always useful. <laughs> and I laughed when I read that. And the, it goes on to say that while salt is always useful for flavoring any type of curry, uh, in the same way, mindfulness is always useful in your practice. And in the same way, a versatile prime minister is great because they can carry out any of the factor, you know, any of the functions of state that are needed. In the same way, mindfulness is useful. So these were analogies that were relevant in ancient India, and I, I some, but somehow they, I found them still useful. <laughs> so the the factors of awakening are cultivated in many different ways. They're very fundamental, and they appear, in fact, in the Satipatthana Sutta, which is the most basic set of instructions that we use in our tradition. The cultivation of uh, the factors of the foundations of mindfulness, basically. And um, in fact, it could be said that the Satipatthana Sutta, which is designed to really cultivate all the different types of mindfulness, the whole point of that is to generate mindfulness as an awakening factor. That's the fruit of it, and that's the fundamental, foundational, and balancing awakening factor from which all the others can come. It's also true that in the fourth foundation of mindfulness, the um, seven factors of awakening are mentioned as qualities that we should be aware of. When are they arising? How do they come to be? How are they sustained? And how are they cultivated? Other suttas that talk about the awakening factors say that they are supported by seclusion, dispassion, and cessation, and they lead to letting go, which is a very nice phrase, is that each of the factors, so mindfulness is supported by seclusion, dispassion, and cessation, leading to letting go. Investigation, supported by seclusion, dispassion, cessation, leading to letting go, and for all seven. And I wanted to share a um, a way of describing this that um, comes from Bhikkhu Analio, and he talks about how um, what we do in our practice, right, is that in mindfulness practice, is that we watch momentary, you know, we watch each moment what's happening. So he represents moments by pieces of paper, and he says, you know, here's what's happening in this moment, and then there's the next moment. And then there's the next moment like this. And he, he shows them first as these overlapping pieces of paper. And he says, you know, we're mindful of this. And then um, we're mindful of the next thing kind of after it's already started. You know, and then we see this one. And the reason for that is that we don't have adequate dispassion when we start. We're leaning into experience. We've got this one, and then we want the next one. <laughs> or we don't want it, and that actually pulls it closer when we don't want it.
on things. So we have this overlap, and we never quite see the end and the beginning very clearly. Um, and that's because our mind is passionate. It has likes and dislikes and wants, and it doesn't want, and it wants to keep. Oh, this one was a tranquil one. I want that one. And by the time we're willing to let it go, we're halfway through the next moment. And so there's sort of this sense of... Um, of, of grabbing, and this is actually tiring for the mind. That's why it's nice to cultivate the calming factors when we have that sense of, of grabbing or pushing away. And then eventually, uh, through the cultivation of genuine mindfulness, which is uh, being aware in a way that's balanced, in a way that's willing to let go moment to moment, and to see each thing as it arises, and then we start to, um, through this dispassion, right? So it's supported by seclusion, which is sitting quietly and not getting caught up in stuff. And dispassion, we start to be able to see cessation. So we start to see the end of one moment and the beginning of the next one. So we get familiar with what it's like to let things end, actually. Um, when you first start asking people about arising and passing away, which is what I encourage noticing, right? The flow, the change, the coming and going of things. Usually they'll talk about the arising. You know, they'll say, I saw, I heard a sound, and then I felt a body sensation, and then there was a switching to this and this. And they're always describing what, the, what was arising. <laughs> it's like, where was the cessation in that? Uh, and so it takes a long time, actually, before we can adequately see the ending of things because we're so um, grabby onto the next thing. And we're interested in arising because it's more interesting, right? We like things that are starting. We don't like things that are ending. We like birth. We don't like death, right? <laughs> so, you know, we're all we're happy at the birth of a baby and we're sad at a funeral, but they're actually, you know, there's as many of one as the other, usually. So, at least in a given life... <laughs> so um, so it takes a while, but eventually we have enough dispassion that we're willing to see the ending of moments, and that can actually get very interesting. You know, what is it like to see the very end? The breath is a great one. Every breath ends before the next one can start, and so do we watch the very end of the breath? Um, the very, it's hard to see it because it fades. It gets, you know, there's very light sensations at the very end of the breath. That's the moment when we zip off and start thinking about something. Um, but it's very interesting to watch the very end, and then is there going to be another one? And then there is. Usually, there's only once when there isn't going to be. And and so uh, that's going to be a good place to practice seeing cessation. So we start to see cessation. We start to get familiar with that. You can practice this with sounds. Sounds end. Start to hear the silence between sounds. Um, it's a little harder to see with things like sight, since sight is so continuous for us. So that's a challenge. <laughs> taste. Um, get to the end of a bite of food and feel the taste from that bite fade. How do we normally eat? We take the next bite before the last one has completely faded. Because <laughs> we don't. it gets boring. You know, actually, if you chew something 10 or 15 or 20 times, it doesn't taste like very much anymore. It's kind of gone. And so then we're swallowing quickly and getting the next bite in our mouth because we want that taste again. But it's nice to watch the end of the taste. And so when we start getting familiar with cessation, so supported by seclusion, dispassion, and cessation, we might at some point notice that there's a gap between experiences. And that gap is through which we can let go. Actually, letting go 
can happen to something that is beyond experience, can fall out of experience. It's variously called the escape or the stepping out. Um, it just comes through increased precision of mindfulness. Described succinctly in that phrase, supported by seclusion, dispassion, and cessation, leading to letting go. So in the same way, we have the intellectual understanding leading to the reflective uh, acceptance in our own experience, leading to the actual uh, direct knowing of what the Dharma is. My experience is that as direct experience develops in practice, it changes the other kinds of wisdom that are available to us. So it's not like you need to think like, okay, I'm going to start with Sutta Mahaponya and then, but you know, I'm going to be done with that at some point. It's just all going to be direct experience. Um, the path is long, <laughs> and so we we start to have direct experience immediately. Actually, I mean, the first time you meditated, you had some direct experience. Um, and so it's not like when it, this is something where it's just stepwise and we have to wait all the way until the very end and we have like full liberation like the Buddha to really know what direct knowing is. Um, I find that with, I found that with uh, degrees of direct knowing and starting to really feel in our body, our experience, really understanding how the mind and the body are related, how knowing happens in, in the object and the knowing, you know, these kinds of things, um, it changes the way I hear Dharma talks, and it changes the way I read teachings. I go back and I read stuff that I had read before, and I say, oh, this is actually quite deep. There's a lot in here. Um, I didn't really see before what was being said, or I see a different aspect of it. And then that can change uh, how I understand the Dharma, and then eventually how, again, leading to a deeper layer of direct knowing. So I think these are a cycle, actually. We don't need to disparage one as cheaper than the others, although we are kind of moving toward less conceptual reliance in our life. Yeah, so these are my thoughts on um, different kinds of wisdom and the development of our practice. And it was lovely to have this day of practice together. So there's still a little time. Um, does anybody have any questions or, or comments? Seclusion, seclusion, dispassion, cessation. Mm-hmm. I know that term seclusion is also used in describing uh, the jhanas, mm-hmm. like secluded from the hindrances, worry for the world, or something like that. Is that so when it's so is seclusion referring to being concentrated? You say seclusion, dispassion, cessation. It can. Uh, there's two kinds of seclusion. There's bodily seclusion and there's mental seclusion. And so um, the Buddha encouraged both, of course, although in the end the mental seclusion matters more. But the, I would say there's, even within that, multiple types. So there's bodily seclusion means that you get yourself to a quiet place and you sit down and you not, you know, we can understand that one intuitively. And even that can take a little effort in people's lives if they have busy, connected lives. The mental seclusion um, can refer to concentration, to being secluded from the hindrances, actually, is what it refers to. We set aside... Um, 
covetousness and grief for the world, and that's that's an aspect of seclusion. And in the specific um, state when the mind becomes secluded is when we've let go of the five hindrances, which for those who may not be familiar with that list are sensual desire, ill will, restlessness and remorse, sloth and torpor, and doubt. So when those five are no longer present, you can imagine that's a nice state for the mind. <laughs> and that's those are the conditions for, for developing jhana and concentration, samadhi in general. Um, I think we have to be careful reading in that jhana is required for anything in particular. There's a sutta that indicates that you can get to um, at least stream entry and possibly once returning without achieving jhana. That doesn't mean every mind can do that. Um, But there's also, let me um, go a little farther with this mental seclusion. There was a a monk um, who came to the Buddha and said, I practice um, seclusion. Well, I think he said he practices solitariness. No, maybe he even said seclusion. And he said, "The, the way I practice it is that I, I practice completely alone. He said, I go on alms round alone, and then I come back and I sit alone, and then I, I live alone just by myself, and I'm very deeply um, practicing seclusion. And the Buddha said, well, that's, that's one way to do it. But another way to do it is just to make the mind so that it's uh, not able to be shaken by anything that it encounters in the world. And so, you know, maybe the deepest kind of mental seclusion is the kind that the Buddha had, where he could be anywhere and not be disconnected from Nibbana. Um, that's um, probably requires the first two types of seclusion in a fair degree before we would um, be able to do that. But the aim is that we don't need to we don't need to uh, push anything away or not be in contact with anything. Uh, if the heart is deeply free, it couldn't be shaken by anything in the world. But um, takes practice to get there. <laughs> Does that help with your question? I talked around it a lot, but yeah. thank you. Anything else? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.